thinking as we were progressing through the various aspects of our worship this morning how much of a mental commitment our worship is. You know, I, I don't know that we always appreciate that. I'll put us maybe at the front of that line that we don't always appreciate that. I, I know that the world in general, worshipers in general, don't appreciate that. It's the simplicity of what we're doing here, um, you know, opening a Bible, singing songs, observing elementary elements to remember the greatest event that's ever taken place in the history of the world. In a world that, in a time in a society where our attention is drawn by the flashy and by the loud, it takes a, a mental commitment to be a part of a, a worship, a corporate worship setting. But when we commit that type of time and put that kind of energy into our worship, it is meaningful and impactful and it will sustain us in, in, the, in the world of, of short-lived emotions and of, and of shallow commitments. Now, our topic this morning is not worship, it's, it's marriage. But as I was, we were moving through that, I, I thought in particular in, in Brother Jennings' prayer, and you've heard me say before, how humbled I am when he leads us in prayer. But to emphasize in that prayer our need to be forgiving and loving and compassionate and realize that we're not perfect. Um, without a, a mental commitment, that might get lost in just the flow of a prayer. Every word that we speak and every song that we sing and every passage that we consider is powerful and it ought to be or at least have the ability to impact our walk with Christ and our relationships with one another. And so I, I want us to, to think of that as we move forward uh, this morning. You know, there are, there are subjects that we consider and texts that preachers cover that we have to understand and appreciate why they're being covered. It's almost as if the preacher has to tell us that there's a reason for this. There's a necessity in covering this matter because if we don't, I think if you're like me, we've all left lessons before we've thought, well, that was great, but I'm not sure why we needed that. I'm not sure if that was important for us. I remember visiting out of town on one occasion and where we were visiting had a visiting preacher and his Bible class covered the question, are aliens real? Now, I started that study and ended that study and still wonder today if that was necessary. If is there a problem that we've got in the Lord's church that we need to address and spend an hour Bible class on, on determining? And I thought it was going to be a play on words. I thought there was going to be a discussion about our being strangers and pilgrims and aliens in this world. No, it was straight up, are aliens real? Now, he probably should have explained a little bit because maybe there was something in his study or his personal interaction with people or questions he had been asked that led to that. It would have been helpful I suppose, for him to explain that. However, there are other subjects and there are other texts that we really don't need an explanation to know why, do we? In fact, we think about, well, the preacher's going to preach on this today. I get it. I understand it. Thank, thankfully, I think of, of matters such as the cross and of the church, of salvation, uh, of the creation, of apologetics, of, of marriage and the home. We can appreciate and understand why we need lessons like that. Our October text and topic will probably fall in both of those categories. 
Both the need to explain why and the understanding, maybe without explanation, that this is necessary. I say that because if you were to look at, at the title, it's not just exalted marriage and it's not just under the, the flow of everything else we've been doing this year, but it lessons from the Song of Solomon. Someone might say, why is Wayne preaching from the Song of Solomon? Aren't there other texts in Scripture that deal with marriage? Less uh, hidden or, or controversial or a, more appropriate, some might would say, for a, a, a mixed audience to discuss rather than the contents of the book of Song of Solomon. On the other hand, some will say, I understand exactly why marriage is needful to be discussed, why, why we need to talk about it. Let's talk about marriage. There's a need to exalt it, to protect it to fight for it, to strengthen it, to understand it, so we get it. But maybe on the other hand, maybe this is a sermon series that others have said, I really want to know what he has to say about the book of Song of Solomon. For the sake of the entire month, we usually do this the first Sunday of, of each month when we, when we change themes. We need to spend a little bit of time addressing the book itself. Because we can't do this each week as we introduce a new text or a new concept from the book. And so the, the, the opening lesson has to serve almost as the introduction for all of that. I realize that what I just described about the approach to the book of Song of Solomon is not a universal approach. And it probably doesn't describe the majority of people in this room this morning. We tend, don't we, at university to vary our discussions that we don't stick to one book or even the Old Testament or the New Testament as we study. We don't address just one subject matter. In our classes, you can tell uh, those who have been in charge of those who have done a tremendous job in, in, in making a, a distinction and a variation throughout the course of the quarters to make sure we study the whole counsel of God in a well-rounded approach to Scripture. So I don't suggest that someone said, oh, the Song of Solomon, we've never discussed that before. You really can't say that with honesty here. Understand that. So... So I, I get the fact that that, that general approach and, and maybe, maybe a, a knee-jerk reaction is not universal here. However, there is a general, in the religious world, a general ignorance about the study of a book like this and the uneasiness of opening it in a mixed assembly. Let's keep in mind that this book, the Song of Solomon, is the best song that Solomon ever wrote. The Bible reveals to us in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. And then it says in, in two verses later, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. Now, we don't have all 3,000 of Solomon's proverbs, but we've got a lot of them, don't we? We've got an entire book. Almost all the proverbs in the book of Proverbs are attributed to Solomon. So percentage-wise, we have a, a larger percentage of his Proverbs than we do his songs. you know how many songs we have? We've got one. Of the 1,005, we have one. And when the text opens, it calls it the Song of Songs. Maybe you have a footnote there in your Bible. In, in the opening of, of Song of Solomon 1 and verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Maybe there's a footnote that says the best of the songs. Because the Hebrew can be, can be translated that way. Listen, to say this is the song of songs is just like saying that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Of all the lords there are, he's the Lord of them all. 
of all the kings there are, he has authority over them. It's like calling the most holy place in the tabernacle of the temple the holy of holies. It's the supreme holy place, the best holy place, the most sacred holy place. So when the, when the Hebrew writer describes to us this song, the Song of Solomon, it's telling us that it is the best song Solomon ever wrote. That makes then the study of it maybe even more important and more significant that we consider it. Although only a small book, 117 verses, it has a large number of uncommon words in it. There are about 470 different Hebrew words in the book. Of those, 47 are only found here. 51 are only found in five verses or less outside of the Song of Solomon. And 45 of them only six to ten times. That leaves about, when you do all the math, about 300 words that are common from this book to every other book of the Hebrew Bible. Every other word is new and different. It tells me then the subject matter of that book is new and different. That, that this type of material isn't addressed as often. Now, as a preacher, that helps me appreciate the fact that I probably don't need to be preaching on the subject matter of the Song of Solomon the majority of the time. If Scripture only addresses it a small percentage, then our addressing it in the public arena probably should also be a small, uh, small and significant uh, compared to the other uh, amount of time. But the biggest question probably comes when we look at this book is how are we to view it? How are we to view the book? Now, I began my notes by, by listing the two prominent views. And then as I began to study and read, I realized that there is a growing view. So I just want to share it with you and, and sort of dismiss that out to the side. But just so you know it's there, maybe if you go home and start studying you know, interpretive views of Song of Solomon, you may come across a growing trend among scholarly material and scholarly writers to believe that there are three main characters in the book. That there is the, 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 the Shulamite, the bride, the wife. There is the king who's represented by Solomon. And then there is the shepherd which represents the Shulamite woman's actual boyfriend or lover or husband. And that the, the book is really about a, the oppression of women and the oppression of arranged marriages and that that she's in love with this person she can't have because the king has taken her away and put her in his harem. Now, if you want to think about Solomon's life, there may have been a need for Solomon to be taught that lesson, by the way. I don't think that's what this book's about, but there might have been a need for Solomon to learn that someone's spouse belongs to them and he can't just take a wife and put them in his harem if he wants to. But the idea would be then that, that women should be liberated, that true love breaks the shackles of the ancient traditions and, and seeks for marriage on the, on the grounds of of infatuation and love as opposed to what might be arranged marriages or forced marriages or things like that. And then, not that you really care about any of this, then Jesus becomes the picture of the shepherd who's the one that we truly love and that he will liberate us from the oppression of the ancient cultures of our world and then we live happily ever after. There's a whole lot of problem with that analogy and rendering of this book. But it's out there and it's popular and we need to be careful. But the two primary historical views of this book is that it is an allegory. It is a, a, a picture, a poetic picture of, of true love. And since it's Old Testament, and the Old Testament speaks in, in terms of the New Testament and the New Covenant in, in prophetic terms, then there really is no woman, there really is no king. It represents no one who's real 
and, and genuine, just a, a, a parabolic picture, an allegorical picture of Christ and the church as, as they're brought about. And then there is the literal view. And that is that there was a, a literal woman who married a literal man and their courtship, their early marriage, even the consummation of that marriage, the beginning troubles of their marriage, the reconciliation of those troubles are all described in this book. Now, if I had to pick one of those two, I would pick the literal. Absolutely. But I'm not sure that we have to dismiss the allegorical view because we take the historical view. We could just blend the two. It's a true story that represents true life, true marriage, true desire, true feelings, true consummation, true troubles, true reconciliation, that is a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. Listen, God has always pictured his relationship with his people as, as a marriage, hasn't he? Israel, we would have taken the time if, if it weren't what time it already is, and gone back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, or Exodus chapter 34 rather, and read that description of who they were. And that he charged them, if they were to go after the gods of the land, verse 17, that they would be adulterers and adulteresses. That they would be seeking after harlots. Now, that wasn't a, a, a physical condemnation, although sometimes idol worship did involve sexual immorality. What he meant was, if you give your heart and your allegiance to someone other than me, I am a jealous God, and I will see that as you cheating on our marriage together. It's played out perfectly well in the book of Hosea in the Minor Prophets. And then when you come to the New Testament, you have that lengthy reading in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, 23-33, which says, Husbands, here's what you ought to be to your wives, and wives, here's what you ought to be to your husbands, because your marriage is a representation of Christ and the church. As Israel of old was married to God the Father, so the church today is married to Jesus Christ, and so there's a picture. But here's what I would encourage us to do. Let's flip that. It's not that God took... A, 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 a beautiful image and picture in the Song of Solomon and then imposed upon it Christ and the church, but rather that he's always had that relationship with mankind and marriage in every generation becomes a representation of that. It's marriage that represents the relationship with God, not God's situation that represents the power of our marriage. Marriage becomes a secondary illustration to the major point. So I believe we can see the book from that perspective. It's about a real relationship, real intimacy, real marriage, real heartache, real love, and real commitment. And because of that, because of that, we can learn some things about our own marriage by reading it and studying it together. With all of that being said, what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at the language of love as contained in this great book. Now, I don't want this to be a series of lessons that's do better and try harder. Because you know what? We never do good enough, and we never try hard enough, and we always feel like we're not enough at the end of it. It's not what I want it to be. I don't want this to be just, okay, here's a glorified marriage counseling session with every married couple in the congregation gathered together, and now let's work through our and sort through our issues. That's not it either. But if we're going to do more, and appreciate our relationship, we're going to have to learn some things. And so uh, this, this lesson is very simplistic in nature. I want us to consider two things as we speak to one another in our marriages. Now, by the way, this is also not a communication lesson. This is not methodology. Okay, if you have a fight, here's what you say and here's what you don't say. We'll leave that for someone else at some other time who's braver than I am. 
But there are some ways that we can and should speak to one another in marriage. And I just want to consider two from the first couple of chapters of this book this morning. Number one, we need to speak words of praise. In our marriage, we need to speak words of praise. It's been noted that what sets married couples apart from strangers is that married couples are often less polite to one another than they are to strangers. And if you've ever felt that or experienced that or lived that, you know the truth and reality of that thought. If you read through verses or chapters 1 and 2, and by the way, there's a reason why we won't read every passage in the Song of Solomon in a public assembly. There's a reason for that. We'll be discreet about the things that we do read and the things that we do consider. But he praises, according to chapter 1 and verse 8, he praises his either spouse or future spouse, depending on when you believe the marriage takes place. Are they already married when the book opens? Or do they get married in chapter 3? I tend to believe they get married in chapter 3. So you have this this picture of, of the courtship and the dating process, which would carry over by vocabulary reasons into the, into the, uh, into the, the marriage itself. But he says, if you do not know most beautiful among women... There is a a praise of comparison in this marriage. Now, this harkens back, if you follow the text, to her complaint in verse 6 that she's not worth looking at. Don't look at me. Everyone's staring at me. She, she She is convinced that no one will love her and that no one will think that he's attractive. And in response to that, the man says, you are second to none. In comparison to all the women, you are most beautiful. He compliments her and praises her in comparison. He also praises her physical appearance. He talks about her cheeks being lovely and her neck being being adorned in in verse 10. There's a, a physical appearance. You drop down to verse 15. He talks about how beautiful her eyes are. When you go even to chapter 2 and in verse 10, he talks about his beautiful one and encourages her to come along he praises her physical appearance he praises i believe in verse 11 her attire what she's adorned with you see that adornment that she is she's fixed herself up is to impress him and he acknowledges that he praises her in comparison he praises her in in the way that she looks he praises her in what she wears friends there's something to be learned there isn't there this isn't just words on a page You see, God authored these words and he made us. He knows the words she needs to hear. And while the picture may be greater than Solomon and his bride, and it may have a direct reference to our relationship with Jesus Christ, there's a need for husbands to realize their wives need praise. Not faked or forced, but genuine praise in this fashion. She also praises him. She praises his physical appearance in chapter 1 and verse 16 by calling him handsome. She even praises his physical appearance and his voice in chapter 2 and verse 14. She also praises him in comparison to all others. Chapter 2 and verse 3, she praises him for the provisions that he has, for the way that he takes care of her. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. The New Testament is going to pick up on this distinction between the praise and adoration that a man needs and the praise and adoration that a woman needs in in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says that a wife is to reverence her husband and that a a husband is to love his wife. Those are two different words and they invoke two different concepts, both for the betterment of the marriage. That's not a New Testament or the Apostle Paul illustration. 
That's embedded all the way back in the vocabulary and the exchange of the praise words between Solomon and his bride or his future bride here in the opening chapters of this book. Does that sound like exaggeration? Does it? You're the most beautiful of all the women that that there are. Anyone ever said that and you thought, you're crazy? You're crazy. You haven't seen everybody in the world. How do you know that? But there is a connection and an intimacy and a passion that exists in this vocabulary that words of praise, really, they, they, they can't even fully do justice to. These words will be remembered Over in chapter 2 and verse 10, there's an interesting phrase. She seems to be talking to someone else about him, and she says, My beloved responded and said to me, She told someone about the words that he said. Have you ever been in that situation where someone wanted to tell you about something their spouse said to them? How many times was it good and how many times was it negative? You won't believe what my wife said to me this morning. You won't believe what my husband said to me last night. When she talked about him, she talked about him positively because his words were positive. It was praise given to her and she could then repeat that what he had said to her meant something to her. In fact, someone might say to this, who talks like this? Who uses this kind of vocabulary? Who expresses their love so freely and so continually? In fact, there's a statement made. She calls herself lovesick. She says, I'm lovesick. In the text. And we might would say that that's why you're talking like this. That's why you're saying these things. But the point of the book is that should describe the relationship throughout. In fact, the problems come when the lovesickness isn't there anymore. When the words turn from praise to ridicule or criticism, from positive to negative. In fact, there's a, a, a report that suggests in the rearing of children... There are children need a ratio of five to one. That is, they need five positive affirmations about who they are and what they can do and, and what they can accomplish versus one negative criticism about their life. That's a staggering number and a sobering thought for someone who's tried to raise children. I don't know about you, but it is for me. Five to one. If our children need that type of nourishment as they grow, what about our marriages? Do they need it? You see, it's not that we can't find more than one negative thing to say. It's that we understand the relationship isn't helped when we choose that over the other. Because for every negative we can say, there is a positive. The choice of what comes out of our mouth is ours. Our spouses need words of praise. That means we're going to have to state the obvious, right? We're going to have to repeat again what we said the day before. Train our thoughts to think positive and not negative. That's on us. Listen, this, is, this book isn't a, a book of methodology. Here's how you get to this point. It just shows the value of doing it. My own personal relationship will have to determine where I can go from there. I love the rendering, and we'll end this point with this thought, of, of Romans 12.10 from the ESV. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. I think if we were to carry that into the words of praise in our marriage, we would probably sound a lot like Song of Solomon chapters 1 and 2, and people around us would say, I think they're lovesick. And maybe that would be true. Number two this morning, very quickly, 
We need words of praise in our, in our homes, in our marriages. We also need words of passion. We need words of passion. Gordon MacDonald said about the opening two chapters of this book, he said, these are two people whose emotions are so swelled that words are inadequate to express what they are feeling. They must resort to other images like the strength and beauty of trees or the taste of fruit. Suddenly I realized why a man would call his wife honey or babe. A loving couple began early in their relationship to develop a private vocabulary, some of which would never be disclosed to the outside world. These words have significance which only the two understand. Read those two chapters, and you're going to find the words beloved. You're going to find the, the, the reference to, to my dove. You're going to find my darling. Those are, those are personal, passionate words. You're going to see that it opens with her desire just to kiss him, chapter 1 and verse 2. The desire to be in the same room together or in the same general geographic location, 1-4. Anticipation is built when one is away from the other, chapter 2 and verse 8. A closeness for desire and to embrace, chapter 2 and verse 6. Even the end of chapter 2 says, My beloved is mine and I am his. In a, in a day when, when ownership in marriage is discounted, when, when our modern vocabulary mocks the idea of a man belonging to his wife and a wife belonging to her husband, that's how passionate, intimate conversation is. And that's his desire for us, is that we be passionate in the disclosing of that information. Now, we could add to that that we could be, should be discreet, that we should be careful, that we should be respectful, all of those things, I guess, for other thoughts at other times. But we need to be passionate. It comes from that first section of words, and that is positive. It's, it's very difficult to be passionate about something that's extremely negative, isn't it? In fact, negativity breeds apathy. But when someone's positive and reflects on those things that are good and those things that are valuable and those things that are important and those things that are appreciated, that's what we get passionate about. And our marriages deserve both of these. Words of praise and words of passion. I will say that if your marriage is struggling and communication is one of those issues, while this lesson was not designed to dive into that, please don't leave or dismiss the thought or just assume there's not an answer. There is. We don't generally do this in our, in our series of lessons over a month, but I'm going to constantly remind us of our need to lean on one another when things at home aren't what they ought to be. God loves families he loves marriage. He wants it to last. He wants it to be productive. He doesn't want it to be a prison. But a reflection of his relationship with his people, ultimately, by the way, a reflection of his eternal existence with his people. And if that doesn't describe your marriage this morning, it may not need be that you're going to come sit on the front row, but you can and ask for prayers. It may be that you need help privately and and, and, and outside of the public eye, please don't, don't dismiss this as just a lesson among lessons. But with a, a serious understanding that we need to get right the things at home so we can get everything else right beyond that. If you're not a Christian this morning, we're going to offer the Lord's invitation to you to ask you to respond to him, to come to him. You see, we, we sang 
there were a few lines in the songs this morning, and I know that I probably saw them a little differently because of what I was going to preach about clasping hands with God and about walking with Him and about how deep His love is for us. You see, in that terminology, we're speaking of a very intimate relationship. Does that describe how close you are to God? Or is it distant and far off, more, more professional or friend-like? If it is, fix that. Come to Christ, obey the gospel, put on Christ in baptism, be faithful to him, recommit your life, whatever your need is. We want you to have that relationship. More than importantly, he wants you to have that relationship. If we can assist you in finding it, we ask that you would come while we stand and sing.